If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to look today at verses 14 through verse 23. And I'm going to title our sermon this morning, Judge Not the Lord. Judge not the Lord. From Romans chapter 9, verse 14 through 23. If you would, I know you were just standing, but let's please stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. Starting with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his grace, uh, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Father, we ask that you would help us as we study this text. God, give us grace. Help us hear your word as it is, and God, I pray that we would trust you for your grace. God, help me as I preach this, Lord, to preach your truth, not merely ideas of my own. I pray for our people that you would open our hearts, including my own, to receive your word, that you would shape us, make us look like Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Judge not the Lord. A story is told of Bishop Potter, who was sailing on a great transatlantic vessel, a big ocean liner. And as he got onto the ship, he realized that he was sharing his cabin with another passenger. He got one glimpse of his, his roommate, and he thought to himself, he doesn't appear to be a man I can trust. And so he made his way to guest services, and he went up to the desk there, and he talked to the attendant, and he gave the attendant his gold watch and some other valuables, and he said, could you please store this in the ship's safe? I normally don't avail myself to such privileges, but he said, I, I got a glimpse of my roommate, and he doesn't appear to be a man, a man that I can trust. The man at guest services took his valuables and said, that's not a problem. I'll store them for you. And he said, your roommate was actually here as well and gave us his valuables for the same reason. Don't you understand that judgmentalism begins with just a glimpse of somebody and making a judgment, not taking time to get to know them, not seeking to understand 
not lingering with another long enough to have a proper understanding of who they are. And so for that reason, we often are all walking around judgmental. Now, there's probably, I'm going to just make this statement. There is no being in all of the universe over all time that has received more false accusations than God himself. Let me say that again, just to wrap your mind around it. I mean, it's got to be a true statement. There is no other being that has received more false accusations than God himself. At first glimpse, I don't think he can be a God worth trusting. Now, I, I think there's no other doctrine there's no other characteristic about God that people have quickly glanced at and said, I cannot trust a God like that. Then what we are discovering right here in Romans chapter 9. I think the doctrine that is taught about God, it's all through the Bible, but it's highlighted right here in Romans chapter 9. This aspect of God I believe has brought more judgmentalism toward God, more accusations toward God than any other, of his any other aspect of him or any other characteristic of God. I once served under a pastor who said, and I quote, if God elects some, and not others. He said, I could never worship that God. And I thought, I got to get out of this church. At first glance, this doctrine only seems bitter. You know, and my pastor, who I once served under, reflects probably many who just haven't lingered enough with this doctrine. Who haven't, they haven't, I'm not saying they're not Christians, but they haven't sat long enough gazing upon this aspect of who God reveals himself to be in order to know how sweet it actually is. God's word is sweet, every bit of it. And if there's a part of God's Word that seems bitter to you, now listen, I am not saying that you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm just saying you haven't stared at that page long enough. That's all I'm saying. And we, we're all guilty of this. We've all said, over one doctrine or another, oh, I don't like this part of God. You know, maybe it's his, God's revelation of sexual ethics or gender or, um, or uh, hell. I mean, we could go down a list of things that, that, that seem in this culture, in this day and age, that seem to be bitter, bitter doctrines. And, and then we'll say things, we'll like apologize for God, and we'll say things like, you know, I don't like this part. I don't like this doctrine. If I could have it some other way, you know, I would do it differently myself. But this is who God, as if we're like apologizing for God. Are you with me? As if we're like, you know, just, as if God actually could do things a better way. As if God is not wholly good. As if not everything he does is commendable, praiseworthy, and to be uh, to be seen as glorious. The same thing applies to this doctrine that we're studying here. And so, I want to invite all of us this morning to just explore this together. And I want you to taste it, and I want you to see it afresh. I want to invite you to come along this journey, and I want you to see that this doctrine that God is teaching us in Romans 9 of election is sweet. There is a bitterness 
to it. But at the very end of it is something that's very sweet. Very sweet. And so I want to show us the sweetness of election so that we judge not the Lord. That's the goal. Now, backing up, um, if you're new with us, welcome. Uh, We are going through the book of Romans, and we are here in chapter 9 simply because we've been going through one chapter at a time, one verse at a time. And as we got into Romans chapter 8, which is all about these promises that God makes to us, really good stuff like eternity and glory and new bodies and revelation of God's children, like really beautiful stuff that He's promised you. We then get into Romans chapter 9 and we see, wait a second, Paul has some Israel, Israelite brothers who are not recipients of these promises, but they're Israelites. And if you know anything about Israel, Israel, the people of God that have received the covenant. And so, so Romans chapter 9 then is dealing with this question, what about Israel? What about Israel? And Paul says in the first five verses, he says, as I think about my brother Israelites who are not on their way to heaven right now, he says, it causes me unceasing anguish. That word anguish is a word which means consuming pain. Man, that is a loud motor engine, whatever that is. Consuming pain or grief. Uh, I think of my daughter Eden when she was in kindergarten, and it was one of the most heartbreaking moments of, uh, uh, for, for me at, during, during this year for her when her best friend left the school. It might have been first grade. Was that kindergarten or first grade? First grade, she remembers. Anguish, all right, unceasing grief. She had tears running down her face, you know. And, and I feel like maybe, maybe that, that feeling amped up times a hundred is probably what Paul was thinking or feeling as he thought about his brother Israelites who will not be in heaven with him, who are not giving God what God deserves, the glory and worship that he deserves. And Paul says, if I could, if I could trade with them, I would. That's how much anguish I feel. And that brings them, Paul, to this question, wait a second, Is God a promise-keeping God? If God is not saving all of my Israelite brothers, can we trust the promises of God? Remember, we just came off of Romans 8, chock full of God's promises. Can we trust these promises? And Paul says, yes, we can. Here's why. It's because Paul's saying what's happening now with some of my Israelite brothers rejecting Jesus. What's happening now is is, is the way it's always been. What he says is this. He says, God has always worked for his purposes through election. So that's his answer to will, will, will God keep his promises? And he says, yes. Why? Because God works through election. And then he goes on in verses uh, 6 through 13 to explain this. And he talks about Jacob and Esau, these two brothers that were twins, as a matter of fact, of the same mother and father, born on the same day. Esau comes out first, Jacob shortly thereafter. And God says, before they were born, before either of them behaved good or behaved bad, he said, I... I decided to love Esau, uh, to love Jacob, and Esau I hated. So God unconditionally ch- chose one and not the other. Now, there's a bitterness there, which we're going to deal with. But the sweetness right off the bat is this, is that what Paul is saying is, is that if... God chose you unconditionally. There are no conditions to which he's going to fulfill his promises. Meaning, if God's election of you was purely by his grace, then God's fulfilling of his own promises to you are fully by his grace. If you were not chosen based on your ability, then it's not your ability through which you will end up getting to heaven. 
Meaning God gets what God wants, and if God chose you by His grace, God will get you by His grace. That's what he's saying. So, so you know, that part, we can hear that, and we can be like, amen to that. Amen. Like, as it relates to me personally, and like, the fact that like, I know that I didn't do anything to contribute to my salvation. I know that my faith was even a gift because it's not like I could muster it up. It was just like, just one day I started to believe and I praise God for that. I get that. I get it. And I praise God for it. And I say, you know what? I, 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 I can see the sweetness as it relates to the fact that God says, Joel, I chose you. But... You see, there's always this but that comes there. But wait a second. That means he didn't choose somebody else. That means that those that don't have faith were not chosen, at least not that we know of. And this creates a big hold up. I'm not sure if I can get with this. This seems bitter to me. Sort of like when I worked at McDonald's. Let me lighten the mood a little bit here. When I worked, I was 16, got my first job at McDonald's. And I was working the register, and um, I I was well-known at McDonald's for uh, ice cream cones. You know, everybody would pay their dollar, and I would take, take their dollar, I think it was about a buck for a cone back then, and I would, I would just go, like, pull the machine, you know, the, the handle, the lever, and I would just let the ice cream fill. And I'd get, like, eight inches, sometimes ten inches, and I'd just be like, like this, you know. And it was amazing. Uh, and I, could, I just did it. All right? I was like the king of the ice cream. And then, because I am a warped sinner... The next guy, he just saw a 10-inch ice cream cone. I would take his dollar, and I would go, bloop, just because. <laughs> so I remember one time, this person was like, I, I gave him like a regular size cone like this, you know, and he, was, he looked at me like, can you uh, do what you did for the other guy? So that was the way I worked it, you know, it was like I was the, the lord of the ice cream. And I would indiscriminately choose who I would bless. Um, and that was until management took me aside and gave me a training, a mandatory training on how to make an ice cream cone. All right? So if you ever feel like you're kind of belittled at your job, just remember Joel had a mandatory training on how to make an ice cream cone in order to keep his job. All right? Humble yourself. Um, now, here's, here's the thing. I think sometimes we think of God's election in a similar way. That God just sort of aimlessly blesses some and then not others. You know, some get a beautiful, wondrous, grace-filled ice cream cone and others just get, you know, judgment. An ice cream cone of judgment. And this, this feels blind, it feels aimless. At worst, it feels harsh or cruel. Is this the doctrine of election? Now, Paul, I believe, begins to address the accusations against God so that we would know that election is not bitter but sweet. The first question Paul addresses is in verse 14, and it's this question which you may ask yourself. See, Paul was a very, he was a very well-known speaker by this time. He, was, he probably had preached many of these uh, writings as individual sermons over and over and over again. And so Paul knew the questions that were coming. He knew they were coming. And by the way, this is why we know our reading of Romans 9 is correct, is because it comes with such strong accusations against God. 
Paul knows that when he talks about election in this way, that people are going to say, first question here, wait a second, are you saying that God is unjust? That's not justice. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice, injustice on God's part? By no means. Is God just to unconditionally choose Jacob and to reject Esau? If, if Paul has been unconditionally chosen by God, is God just to not choose his Israelite brothers? Now, Paul answers this question in the strongest way he possibly can. He says, by no means. That's the strongest language he can come up with to denounce this accusation. Paul will forever defend the righteousness of God. If God, and guys, you need to forever defend the righteousness of God. And that God's righteousness needs to come across in the way that you talk about his doctrines, which is why I said my whole spiel earlier about when we apologize for God. Listen, if God is not righteous, then nothing is good. I mean, if you take all of what we consider good in this world, you take all of all of the good Samaritans and all of the pastors and all of the missionaries who have given their life for God and all of the good moms and the good fathers and you take all of the civil rights activists and you take everybody that's doing good around the holidays and we were to group all of those good things and good people together, they are merely a pebble compared to the righteous mountain of God's goodness. God is holy good. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy good. Meaning there is no part of him that is not good. So is God unjust in doing so? Paul says, no. Certainly not. Here's the first point I want to drive home for you. Election is sweet because it shows God's good compassion for his people. Election is sweet because it shows his compassion for his people. John Calvin, when we talk about election, a name that often comes up if you are at all familiar with theology is John Calvin or Calvinism. Because Calvin did actually talk a lot about election. And Calvin, I think, gets more, more of a bad rap than any other theologian. Just read Calvin. And what you'll discover is that his writings are warm and pastoral. See, here was his issue. Calvin was preaching to a, a whole bunch of people who were coming out of the dark ages of the Roman Catholic Church. They had been told for generations that they have no confidence that God loves them. That you can have no confidence that God loves you. And that you must uh, go through all, jump through all of these hoops and pay all of this money for indulgences just with the hopes that maybe God might, God might just give you a little less time in purgatory. Oh, but you are going to purgatory. And you might not even make it to purgatory. You see, there was no confidence. And this was the system that... that that the, the, I can't even call it a church, the, that the Roman Catholic Church was using at the time to oppress people. This is what created the whole Reformation. It was, it was like the most corrupt, if we want to talk about like corruption in a church, it was the greatest corruption I think the church has ever seen. Where we're benefiting, we're, we're pocketing people based off of their lack of assurance that God loves them. So what Calvin was doing was he was saying, look, look at the scriptures. God chose you. Before, like unconditionally, before the foundations of the world, you were, you're the elect of God. And so this was meant to be pastoral from Calvin, and it's meant to be pastoral and warm from God. It shows us that God is a God of compassion, that God is a God of 
mercy, even in the language that he uses. Look at it. So if, look at verse 15. This is the explanation of his statement. He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy. Somebody say mercy. mercy. You see the emphasis here. Mercy. I will have mercy on whom I, on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, that statement is coming out of Exodus chapter 33. Does anybody remember what happened in Exodus chapter 32? We talked about it last week. Anybody? Come on, theologians, Bible scholars. Golden calf. Somebody say golden calf. Golden calf happened in Exodus 32, all right? What that means is in Exodus chapter 32, Israel had, after all God had done, Israel had created an idol. And God said, my fury is against them. I'm going to destroy them. So Moses goes and pleads with God on behalf of the people. And then God relents of his decision to destroy. And God says in Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. This was meant to be encouragement for Moses. And for all of us, what he's saying is, is though you deserve my wrath, though I could, I could blot you off the planet and out of the book right now forever under the judgment and the wrath of God, I am a God who chooses to have compassion, not based on the fact that you never built an idol, but simply based on the fact that I choose to have compassion on. I have mercy on you simply because it is my character to choose to have mercy on you. That's, what he, that's the heart of what he's saying here. This is why my example of like indiscriminately determining who I bless with ice cream is a bad example. Because in that example, everybody gave a dollar and I gave different amounts. You know, and this is, the, this is our problem. This is often the way we think of it. We often think of, the fa uh, think of it this way. We think of like all the human beings are coming with their dollar to God, meaning they're coming with their best effort. They're coming with their best amount of faith. You know, they're, they're living decent lives. And that God is just indiscriminately, blindly choosing some and not others. Well, that doesn't, that, that, that whole example fails because we are not morally good. We're not bringing a dollar to God. We're not bringing our best effort to God. We're not even morally neutral, but we are morally bankrupt. We are born into sin. We're born under the curse of sin. We can't understand the goodness of election unless we understand our depravity, what we deserve, what we deserve. What, uh, give me what I deserve. You want, you, you want what you deserve. You see, what we deserve is hell. And God says, you know what? I show compassion on whom I choose to show compassion. God shows us mercy, though we don't deserve it. If I got what I deserve, I would be dead. Here's the point. You can't accuse someone of being wrong simply because they didn't show someone mercy. Does that make sense? Like the very nature of mercy means that mercy can't be demanded. It's mercy. You can't say, oh, well, you're wrong because you didn't show enough mercy. Like, look, if I owed you $100, and it's coming up to Christmas, and, you know, I've got the 100 on me, but I kind of would like to spend it on some gifts for friends, maybe for myself. And you're like, Joel, you owe me $100. I've got Christmas coming up as well. Give me my $100. I can't say, you're wrong. You should show me mercy. 
You see, when you're the debtor, you don't have the right to judge the one who determines to show mercy or not show mercy. And so the very nature of the fact that God is God and that we are debtors to God means that if God chooses to show mercy on one and not the other, it is within his realm of justice. It is within his right. Verse 16. So then, it depends, here's the point, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Meaning, not an ounce of human effort is part of our salvation. Our human will will always in and of ourself, run the opposite direction from God, not to Him. If I could use my son Chapman, do you mind if I use you as an example, buddy? So when Chapman was younger, when he was little, I mean, he's so well-behaved now. When Chapman was little, um, when Chapman was little, uh, man, his will was strongly opposed to our will. You know, when it was time for him to, like, do anything required for survival, you know, sleeping, eating, um, cleanliness, taking a bath, shower, brushing his teeth, he would run from us. Like, we, we, every night, all right, we'd say, all right, buddy, let's go, and then he just, and we're running all through the house. Like, it was, it was so bad, we would be cracking up. That's how bad it was. Like, you, you know when your kid's so bad, you're just laughing at how bad they are? <laughs> oh, he's so much, he's so well-behaved now, though. Um, he's grown so much, so mature. And uh, so we would chase him, and then we'd grab him and spank him, you know, and we would not, try not to show him that we've been laughing the whole time. Have you ever, like, looked at kids, and then you laugh at yourself because you realize how much that that displays your natural relationship with God? That God wants you just to survive and you're constantly running the opposite direction? He wants you to have what's best, including heaven, and you just want to run the opposite direction? Like how many of us would say, if it wasn't for having a father who was able to run after me and track me down and grab me and occasionally swat me and discipline me and say, you've got to do this because it's for your survival. It's for your good. See, that's our human will. That's the way we, that's the way we are running. It depends, he says, not on human will. Or exertion, meaning if it was up to our will, we would have just, we would still be running from God. So our election depends not on our will, but on God who has mercy. And I just say, praise Him. Praise Him for having mercy on stubborn children like us. Second big thing I want you to get, election is sweet because it displays God's power over the enemy. So the first big thing is it's sweet because it shows God's compassion. Secondly, it's sweet because it displays God's power over the enemy. So we see here as we're reading this text, we see there's two, two references. We see Moses, who was someone that God uh, chose to show mercy to, Moses and the people that Moses represented, Israel. But the second character we see here in Romans 9 is Pharaoh, someone that God did not show mercy to. Look at verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose. Again, we're seeing purpose here. We see God's purpose all throughout Romans 8 and 9. And he says, for this purpose, I have raised you up. For what purpose? Well, the purpose is to display his power to his chosen vessels of mercy. Verse 17 continues, For this purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he will, and he hardens 
whomever he wills. God's power and his ability is seen in his showing mercy, his showing compassion to us, his ability to chase us down. That's God's power. But there's another side of God's power that is also seen here, and that is God's power to harden. That is God's power to judge. So in, in the story of Israel, so we're talking about 430 years of slavery in which the Hebrews were in Egypt. And toward the end of that, it became very brutal with the most recent Pharaoh, and he, he was literally trying to systematically kill the Hebrew race. And they cry out to God, and God hears their cry, and that's really the beginning of the excitement in the book of uh, Exodus, because what God does over a number of chapters is God miraculously intervenes, and, and He shows to His vessels of mercy, in this case it would be the Hebrews, who are slaves in Egypt, He shows His power to them. On one hand, it is mercy, as God parts the Red Sea, and they walk out on dry ground. But, but does anybody know how we got to that point where God parted the Red Sea? Don't you understand that God's mercy is actually displayed through His judgments? That's the other side. You can't have one without the other. And so God then does something that creates a scenario, a situation in which his power is seen as a, as a river splits in half. Well, what is that? Well, it's Pharaoh's hard heart. How? Here's the question. How did Pharaoh's heart get hard? Now, if we go back to Exodus, what we see is, is that throughout these chapters of the ten plagues, two times it says that uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart and said, no, I will not let your people go. And what that means, that word harden, what that means is callousness. You know, it's similar to like calluses I have on my hands from a pull-up bar, all right, where you can't really feel, you know, if you think of a callus, you've lost the sense of feeling there, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's not uh, malleable. Now, a hard heart, think about this, from a spiritual perspective, how scary this actually is, the inability to feel. It's not malleable. It's stiff. Pharaoh hardened his heart in such a way that he is unable to be sensitive to the move of God. He's unable to feel a sense of conviction, a sense of consciousness even. He's unable to feel a sense of what's right and what's wrong. Two times, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Eight times, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is this mystery between our responsibility and God's sovereignty. It's not just one or the other. Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. But we see that the primary actor is God Himself. And then we get to Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, which is quoted here, where He says to Pharaoh, for this reason, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. For this very purpose, I have raised you up. Think about this, all right? Pharaoh thought that he was the baddest dude in the land. Pharaoh thought that he was a god. He thought he was completely autonomous. He thought that he could do whatever he wants to do. And Pharaoh saw this moment as his moment in history, in which he has raised himself up. He saw himself as over and above the Hebrews. And what we're, what we're discovering here is that God says, no, Pharaoh, I raised you up. I mean, this is like the ultimate mic drop, to be able to look at your greatest enemy in the face and say, you know what, you've got nothing over me, and I'll tell you why. It's because I actually have put you into place. 
I have raised you up for this moment because I'm about to do something through you to show my power and glory to the vessels of mercy who you are enslaving. That's power. That's power. Listen, if, if God's enemies could have a will which ultimately resists God's will, then what that tells us is that God may not win. God is not completely in control. Think about it. It means that his enemies actually have a stronger will than he does. It means that God is not actually God. But what God is, has displayed through this whole Exodus narrative and what he's showing us through Paul as he recounts it and as he thinks about this, this big question is he's saying, God is God. God is God, not, not Pharaoh. And it was God that raised Pharaoh up. And it was God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it was through that that God showed his power to the Israelites. I think of Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Same thing. But it has to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to listen closely to this. Jesus Christ lived a life of perfection before God. He lived the life that we should have lived because he was God himself living for us, all right? When Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross by the hands of lawless men, people who were rebels against God, rejectors of God, who arrested him, who tried him, who, who lied on him, who were manipulative, who got him dead, hanging on the cross, brutally murdered, bloody, And he was taken down from that tree and he was thrown into a grave. And there he, he laid for three days. Three days later, he rises from the dead. And what we discover is that the enemies of God did not triumph. They cannot triumph. And by the way, the greatest enemy of God is Satan, sin, and death. The things that we cannot see. Those are your greatest enemies. On the cross of Jesus Christ, he reversed all of that. And he took the death that you deserve. He died in your place. He took the judgment and the wrath that you deserve so that you might be forgiven of your sins. So that hell might be taken care of. And when he rose again from the dead, that was for you on your behalf. So that you might live. How do you become a recipient of this? You turn from your sins... And trust in Jesus. Meaning, I, I turn from the life that I'm living and I make a decision. I change my mind and I say, you know what? I want Jesus. And what you'll discover is that Jesus is infinitely more precious than anything this world can offer you. Anything. This is why I was praying in my prayer earlier that we would recognize that Christ is the greatest gift we can get, not something we get under the tree on the 25th. He's infinitely better than anything this world can offer. Now, that is God's work of salvation. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we, get, we pull back the, 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 the curtain a little bit, and there's this question of, wait a second, who was the primary actor in the crucifixion? Because I said that Jesus was put to death by the hands of lawless men. Was God out of control in that moment? Or was God in control in that moment, directing every bit of it? Acts 2.23 says, I want to find it because I want to read it word for word for you, but I lost it. Give me one second. Here it is. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God. This doctrine of election tells us that even God's adversaries are under his thumb. So we can check it out. God's mercy is seen through his judgments. God's enemies cannot oppose him. Even God's enemies are subject to his throne. 
Therefore, the victory belongs to him. I got to move a little quicker. Point number three election is sweet because it displays God's creative ownership. Election is sweet because it displays God's creative ownership. So, all of this, what we've discussed so far, leads Paul to a new question in verse 19. It says this You will say to me then, like he knows what you're going to say, all right? I know what you're going to say. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Meaning, is God unfair? Hold up, Paul. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then how can God judge Pharaoh for being a sinner? Like, is God being unfair to judge sinners if God is this kind of primary actor behind all things? And see, this is a real issue for us because we live in a world and a culture in which nobody takes responsibility for anything. You know what I'm talking about? I was up here at the gas station, uh, Clark, Clark Gas Station on North Avenue, finest gas station in all of Baltimore City. And I was uh, standing in line to the, get to the register to pay for my gas. And the person in front of me, she was talking about mice in her apartment. She said, I've, uh, she said my, my apartment is infested with mice and I got to get out. I've got to move. She said, they keep coming in because the neighbor is filthy. And I thought to myself, I've never heard anybody take responsibility for the mice they have in their house. Have you ever noticed that? It's always the neighbor. It never, is the, it never has anything to do with the fact that you leave your nasty dishes in the sink and you leave cake on the table, all right? It's the neighbor that's the problem. And I just thought of like, man, we are always so quick to pass the, pass the buck. And just never take responsibility for the mice in our own heart, for our own problem and our own sin. And if we can somehow use all of this stuff about God's sovereignty to twist it and put the blame on God for my sin, then I'm going to do that because that's what I do. And we're not allowed to. That's what Paul's saying. No, 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 no. God is not responsible for your sin. God is not responsible for Pharaoh's sin. Pharaoh is accountable. I am accountable. So Paul asks this question, well, well, you say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist God's will? Now look at what Paul doesn't do. What Paul doesn't do is backtrack and say, well, let me kind of downplay some of this stuff we've been talking about with election. He doesn't do that. Look at his answer. He says, who are you to talk back to God? Who are you, oh man, meaning your humanity, to talk back to God? Can, can that which is made say to the maker, I don't like the way you've made me? Yeah. I could use our church building as an example. 1500 Druid Hill Avenue, future home of the Garden Church. It's, it's a brutalist architecture, all right? Uh, if you've seen it, you might think that is the ugliest uh, building on the block. And you're right, it is. And it fits us. <laughs> um, just playing. You guys are beautiful, all right? Um, it, Post-World War II, there was this new architectural uh, thing that happened, and um, it was called brutalism. And the idea was uh, exposed concrete, kind of this raw, unadorned concrete. And that's what the, that's what the building is. So this, this architect named William Goudreau, uh, was an architect back in the 70s, and he designed uh, that space that we bought, and it's this brutalist architecture. It's, it's all of this exposed concrete. There's very few windows. It's this round building. Now, what if along the way, the concrete decided to have an argument with William Gurdu, and the concrete said, you know what? I don't like the way you're using us. I don't like your design. I don't like brutalist architecture. Or maybe uh, the concrete said, you know what, I kind of like the fact that I'm exposed and I'm seen for what I am, raw, unadorned concrete, but it's not fair that you used other concrete for the footing, for the footers, for the foundation. I don't like your decisions. I don't like your choice on how you've used concrete. Well, this is ridiculous to say for a number of reasons. One, uh, concrete doesn't talk. 
Two, if concrete could talk, concrete uh, uh, doesn't have the right over, its, over the architect, over the designer. And three, concrete cannot understand the mind of the architect. Look what Paul says here. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to, do, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, God is the potter and we are the clay. And we have no right to talk back to God about what God has done with His creation. This is to say that God has all power over His creation. And it is to say that as, as limited as clay is in its ability to understand the mind of the architect, so are we in our ability to understand the mind of God. Can you understand all of God's purposes? I mean, that's like asking the pages of a book to understand the author. It's like saying uh, that we're asking the paint to understand the painter. These, these two things are incomparably different, and we are here, in God's inerrant word, we are likened to clay as it relates to God. And God is likened to the potter. How can we understand the mind of the artist? We can't. And so how can we talk back to God? In order to be able to judge God, we would have to know all of God's possible purposes. We would have to know all possible universes, every possible decision that could be made. And we would have to be able to prove that we can come up with oh, a universe that gives more glory to God than the one that God has made. Are you going to attempt that, oh man, to talk back to God? The ancient theologian Arrhenius put it like this. He said, it is not God, uh, um, it is not you who shapes God. Here we go. It is not you who shape God. It is God who shapes you. If, if then you are the work of God, await the hand of the artist who does all things in due season, offer your, the pottery, your heart, soft and tractable. What he's saying is, is instead of arguing with God, plead with God and say, God, shape me and mold me for your purposes, for my good, for your glory. Let all of the promises of Romans 8 be fulfilled in my life because you are the God who shapes. Fourth and last point, election is sweet because it shows God's glory. It shows God's infinite glory. Look at verse 22 and 23 as we close. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make it known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory? This is presented as a hypothetical question, yet there's nothing imaginary about it. This is Paul's conclusion statement. What if God has endured lumps of clay that are formed for His wrath so that lumps of clay would be formed as vessels of His mercy and that they would know His glory, the riches of His glory? In other words, if everybody were friends of God, I think what Paul is saying is that we would never know God's wrath. And God in His infinite wisdom wants His full glory to be displayed, which includes His judgments. And if everybody were left enemies of God and nobody became friends of God, then we would never know God's mercy. So what if God has done what God has done in this world because it most displays His glory. That's His hypothetical but not imaginary conclusion. Church, I cannot fathom the mind of God. To, to, to try to reduce 
any of this and to use human examples is to always err. Like, like I always think of it like this. I always, I mean, in my flesh, I think, well, if I were to have this kind of power, that would be wrong. And you would say, yes, it would be wrong because you're not God. You see, we can't think of a human analogy that displays God because God is God and all we're experiencing and working with and looking at are created beings. So, so here's, here's my point for this morning's message. Are you ready for it? Here's what I want us to walk away with. Don't judge God, but trust Him for His grace. Don't judge God, but trust Him for His grace. To judge God for any decision is to err, and it is actually blasphemy. Some people are uneasy about God doing all things for His own glory. They say, well, that sounds like God is selfish. That makes God sort of the most selfish being in the universe. Well, C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, God made us, God invented us as a human invents an engine. He said, a car is made to run on gas, gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on Himself. He Himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. And that is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in any other way. Listen to this. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from Himself. Because it is not there. There is no such thing. You see, for God to act for a higher cause other than His own glory is to mean that there is a higher cause than God. That there is a, a greater idea or a greater being or a greater ideology. And then that would mean that that idea or being or ideology is in fact God. But if God is God, then God is right to act for His own glory, and we trust Him for His grace. So is it sweet? Is it sweet? It can be a hard doctrine, but still sweet. There can be some bitter aspects to it, but it's still sweet. Pastor uh, John O., he gave an example of coffee on this one. He's, he said, coffee is a, is a fruit. And uh, it's, a, it's a pit of a cherry, actually. And coffee, as it's growing, it takes on the, uh, the flavor of the soil around it and what else is growing in that soil. And, and so coffee ends up with various flavors. So if you've ever really tasted good coffee, uh, you know that coffee actually has a sweetness to it. You can pick up hints of blueberry or hints of uh, uh, raspberry. But most of you probably don't know that because you just fill up your coffee with cream and sugar. And you never actually taste coffee for what it is. You taste it and you said, ooh, that is just bitter. That's disgusting. I don't know why anybody can enjoy a cup of coffee. And I'm just here to testify to the fact that, brother, sister, you're wrong. <laughs> Maybe you had the wrong coffee, all right? Don't ever get Royal Farms coffee. It's terrible, all right? I do drink it because I drink any coffee, but it's really bad coffee, especially if it's a blueberry flavor. 7-Eleven has blueberry flavor coffee. Stay away from that stuff. There's poison in it, all right? But good coffee, really good coffee, when you lean into the bitterness, what you discover is that there's sweetness on the back end. When you linger with it long enough, when you taste, when you really taste it, you begin to discover there's a natural sweetness to it. Well, the same with God in all of His ways. At first glance, we don't like it and we want to judge God for it. I'm just saying, please don't judge God. Lean into the bitterness and what you'll discover is there's sweetness on the back end. There's something beautiful here. Why? How do I know it? It's because it's in His Word. And all of His Word is sweet. And if we recoil at His Word, it's simply because we have yet to fully taste it. 
Let me just close, close uh, quoting this line from a, a hymn that we often sing, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this doctrine and for the sweetness therein. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who love Your Word. And God, when there are some difficult doctrines that we encounter, I pray that we would not just rush past them. I pray that we would uh, be willing to, uh, to just sit there and linger there and discover that all of Your Word is sweet because it's true, and You are a good God. God, I thank You for the fact that we are people that You chose. God, I pray that we would be encouraged in that truth, that we would delight in Your grace, in Your mercy that You've shown us for Your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.